Hey coconuts, welcome to another episode of TFC Stock Geek Out. If you have been reading the headlines, you'll see that these days it's all about macro. It's about inflation, is it going up, is it going down, it's about recession, yada yada yada. Markets are volatile, it's very stressful, and you know, it's terrible. But joining me today, we have Sebun, right? He is the Chief Investment Strategist at CGI, CIMB, and Prosperous. He's a macro guy, so together with him, we'll take a tour of the macro landscape and see how we might want to position our portfolio in these turbulent times. Unfortunately, after this episode, TFC Stock Geek Club will also be taking a bit of a holiday and we will not have any recordings for the next month. But for reference, this episode was recorded on 10 June 2022. Our discussion today is solely for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not serve as any form of advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do and empowering us financially to do more for you. Let's geek out! Alright, hey coconuts, welcome back to another episode of Stock Geek Out, right? Today we have with us somebody who's a lot more esteemed. I mean, all our guests are esteemed, but this one especially so. We have Sebun. He is the Chief Investment Strategist of CJSCIMB and Prosperous, and uh, among many other hats that he wears. So hi Sebun, welcome to the show. Um, can you give us a bit more introduction into yourself before we dive right into the content? Okay, uh, so thank you very much, Anthony, for that very kind introduction. Uh, much kinder than I deserve, but uh, all welcome. <clears throat> Look, I've I've had a long career in banking and finance in Singapore. I spent some 25, 26 years in Singapore. Uh, my last job in Singapore itself was as Chief Investment Officer for DBS Bank, which you all know. And I, I've since left Singapore and gone home to Melbourne, Australia, where I am now, right? So, and I'm now sitting on the boards of a few companies, mm-hmm. and I'm also the chief investment strategist, as you said, for CGI CIMB Securities and for Prosperous. So that's it. I'll keep it nice and neat. <laughs> yes, that, I think that, that that's the key for us here. And, and I mean, I, I understand that, you know, a lot of the, the investment portions, at least as it pertains to the type of banking roles, has to do with macro, right? And and this is really what we want to talk about today. I mean, if you read the news, you, you, you can't escape the macro nowadays. I think a year back, you probably could. And everybody just looked at, uh, it's all going up, we don't care about macro. But now, unfortunately, I think in this environment, we, we all have to. So so that that's what we'll cover today. Um, So why don't we start, right? From the very beginning, I think you know, when we talk about macro, we are really talking about the U.S. Fed. Um, could you give us a bit more of an introduction about the U.S. Fed, the interest rates, you know, where we see where it has been going and, and where we see it going in maybe the next few months? Well, we are in a um, rates hiking cycle in the U.S. Everybody knows that. So that's not what's unique. Because we also had a rate hiking cycle around 2018 as well, right? So, mm-hmm. And that was no big deal, and the markets continued upwards. I think what is unique this time is the level of inflation which the U.S. Federal Reserve has to counter with its rate hiking cycle. Okay. So we saw at its recent peak, the all items, the headline inflation for the U.S. was 85 Um now the last <clears throat> last month it came down slightly to eight point three. So, so is that uh, the peak? Are we over this? We don't know, but we do have some data coming out tonight. If yes. in fact, but look, look, uh, looking out bigger picture, you know, because we're not just looking at this in terms of one month. 
the bigger picture is that even if inflation has indeed peaked at 8.5 in the US, that's extremely high. We have not seen these sort of numbers for decades, right? So, and even at eight point, let's say eight, yep. okay, the rates are going to have to be much, much higher than we have seen for a very, very long time. Okay. So, the neutral rate, what the uh, the the Federal Reserve geeks call the R star, mm-hmm. is about two percent. But the R star or the neutral rate is not the end rate. Yeah. It's only at a point where it is no longer stimulating the economy. Yes. So you get to go up to two percent, just not to continue to overheat the economy, right? So, you know, if you look at the Taylor rule rate, it could be anything above six, above six percent. But we're not going there yet. So let's let's. I mean, uh, let's it's a cross journey, the right? bridge until we get there. But look, it's a journey, and the journey is headed up, and and it's headed up much higher than where we are at, and which is what's causing this sort of um, turmoil, volatility in the stock market. Because at a very theoretical level, of course, your valuations are inversely related to your risk-free rate, right? Or your discount rate. Discount rate, which is your risk-free rate plus Plus your risk risk premium and and all that. All right. But I mean, mean, thinking back a bit more, right? I mean, my impression of the Fed before this hiking cycle Mm. was that they were especially dovish, right? Um, Powell was was a Republican kind of nominee um, with, with a kind of an inclination towards the, the boosting of economic growth more, more than that. You know, do you think that that's a fair characterization as their fundamental nature and, and therefore you know, there, there might be, a, if there is any reason for them to stop hiking, they, they would? Or, or is that just a, maybe, and I think maybe this is probably right, it's just a misread of the situation and, and it's just a matter of shifting priorities and they're just going to keep hiking until their key priority of inflation has, has come down a bit. Look, I would say that most central bankers have a dovish culture. We have not seen bold uh, 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 central bankers who are keen on breaking inflation for a very long time. But to be fair, we have not seen this sort of inflation for a very long time. As I've... Well, I, I guess unless you were emerging markets, right? <laughs> Yeah. So uh, we have not seen this sort of inflation for a very long time, and we have not seen anything other than dovish central bankers uh, in the developed markets. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, from from the US to Australia, we have not seen anything other than dovish. So the inclination is dovish. In fact, so dovish that we have found ourselves in the situation that we have today because typically if you look back at previous rate hiking cycle uh, going back half a century going back to just immediately after the second world war in fact so let's go back longer than half a century post-war each time the markets uh, the economy sorry starts to heat up and this is reflected in uh, uh, rising non-farm payrolls this mm-hmm. is reflected in in uh, higher and higher growth in consumer spending and retail spending and this is reflected in the surge in consumer confidence you've got your university of uh, michigan index you've got your conference board index typically as these numbers start to go up the federal reserve starts hitting it on the way up 
on the way up, right? So it typically hits it on the way up. So it controls it, it moderates it as it rises. And typically, you get a recession at the point when rates have gone up so much that it starts pulling down jobs. Mm -hmm. It starts destroying consumer confidence. It starts then pulling retail real retail spending to zero or to negative this time is unique this time is different for one reason the federal reserve did not move on rates until inflation was 8.5 percent in previous cycles they hit it as it starts rising not when it gets to 8.5 yeah and i think you know in previous cycles, kind of a reason, at least to my mind, why they wanted to do that is because you know when you hike interest rates, it's a lagging, it has a lagging effect, right? It doesn't go flow straight through the economy immediately. It takes a few months to to actually flow down, and that's when you start seeing in, in the other statistics that you track, right? Whereas now we we have kind of gone past that and let it hit the peak before we start. Yeah, look, I, I at the same time I want to be a little bit sympathetic to yeah, the central because bank there's COVID. this time. <laughs> Because there was a pandemic. So they didn't know what they were dealing with, right? So they were looking at uh, a pandemic shutting everything down, right? But what they didn't count on was that, hang on, it may shut people in their homes, but (laughs) thanks to the digital economy, you can keep spending from your home. (laughs) You can still order your big screen. Fantastic inventions. That's it. That's it. You can go onto Amazon and buy yourself a new pair of run- runners, even if you're not running anywhere. You can go buy yourself a big screen TV, which a lot of Americans did, right? So consumer, du- uh, consumer durables were a great beneficiary. So they didn't count on that, right? So, yep. well, you know, uh, and then they didn't also think that uh, apart from the monetary expansion, what is different this time is that the the quantitative easing, the money printed didn't just sit in the bank's reserves. In previous rounds of quantitative easing, the money created, you know, the Federal Reserve bought treasuries from banks and the Federal Reserve transferred reserves into the banks. So the banks were so cautious they didn't lend it out. Yep. So the money, the money uh, multiply was just not there, right? Okay. <clears throat> Now, this time is different. The money printed went straight to the treasury. And the treasury rained down this this money via your proverbial uh, central bank helicopter. They call it helicopter money, right? This is as close as you get to helicopter money. They rained it down via pandemic checks. And as a result of the pandemic... American households are wealthier now in terms of how much they have in their bank accounts than before the pandemic. Go figure, right? Well, I, I mean, you know, we, we could argue about whether that's a good societal outcome because at the end of the day, it, it did help people, right? That, that really needed yeah, that, help. That's right. That's why I'm you know, saying, yeah. yeah I'm so, sympathetic so he, to an extent, yeah. but it did create the conditions that led this yeah and i think that that's interesting right so you know when we talk about the fed we have been talking about interest rate well firstly interest rate drops and now interest rate hikes and you know you were alluding just now to quantitative easing which is like kind of like a printing of money and in june this year i think they have started quantitative tightening right so so it's the other mechanism in which they're acting could you tell us a bit more about that and and you know how that maybe has an impact if if you know if there's any impact we can see yep. for certain 
Look, uh, uh, again, the same um, directionality works, yeah? Typically, the Federal Reserve starts pulling back uh, mm -hmm. money supply as the economy heats up, right? Yes. Uh, whereas th this time, they have only – well, they're only starting to, to pull now. back this year, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, they have year on year. It's been the less – because of the high sort of base. Uh, so they have also lagged in terms of pulling back money supply. And typically, when you pull back money supply, you you are tightening mm -hmm. uh, the economy, right? So you're tightening financial conditions. And taken to an extreme, it also results in recessions. Yep. Yeah, right? So uh, the difference... This time is, as you pointed out, there is a lag, right? Because they have lagged in tightening uh, uh, on all fronts yes. right? uh, because they didn't know the path of the pandemic. And they were, uh, the main thing was that in March of 2020, they were staring at credit spreads, credit spreads blown out of the roof, mm -hmm. right? that were threatening a, a structural um, a disaster for the U.S. economy. So they were staring at that, and th this is their fear. They, they could not allow uh, credit spreads and fear to, to get to an extent in which what they call as, um, a, um, as uh systemically significant companies to fail because the cost of borrowings will then be so high that they cannot refinance. Yep. Cool. I think that's, that's, that's a fad, right? And, you know, really at the end of the day, a lot of the concern, and, and this is increasingly in the headlines this few weeks as well, is bringing it back to the real economy, right? And, and a lot of, I guess, fear about a recession. Right. I mean, mm. one mm. query whether that's something to be feared. <clears throat> um, another, but I think that the bigger picture that you know we, I, I think we should be aware of is that you know what the Fed does effectively is dampening demand, right? It has no control over supply chains. There are issues there, and and that maybe that partially led to the, the heightened inflation. And what the Fed is doing with its interest rates, you know, with its QT, is really just to push demand down, so that you know th there's a better match between the supply and demand curves at a lower price point, and, and that kind, kind yep. of pushes it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, pushing demand down means that production is pushed down, and that's negative GDP, that, that's recession, which immediately brings to mind a bad thing, right? So are we really going into an era where, you know, there's recession and maybe still heightened inflation, right? What What's the holistic, at, at least, you know, at this snapshot, what, what's the holistic picture of you know, the, the economy that you think we're, we're heading towards? Immediately, I don't think a recession is imminent. Okay. Yeah? So we had one quarter of negative growth in the first quarter, you know, one quarter of negative growth for the US economy in Q1. Yes. Uh, looking at the data, I would guess that you will probably get small growth in the second quarter. It will narrowly dodge. It would narrowly dodge another quarter. So you don't get that sort of uh, popular definition 
of a recession, two consecutive consecutive yeah. quarters of quarter on quarter contraction. So you will dodge that. And the reason I'm saying that you're probably not, not going to get that is because we have recently seen rebounds in uh, um, uh, consumer spending, in retail spending, okay. and uh, where we've seen uh, spending on services that is recorded in retail spending, restaurants and uh, food and beverage outlets. That's gone up. That's gone up significantly. So people are starting to switch from consumption in goods. So they bought all the TVs they want to buy, right? Okay. You can only <laughs> There's look only so at many one TV. You, need. <laughs> you can only look at one screen at a time, all right? Yep. I mean, you can have a few bedrooms, but yeah. But look, you can only look at one screen at a time. And now they're spending more on on services, on food and beverage, on dining out, as you would expect with the lifting of lockdowns and freedom. Uh, and also, we have seen a continued rise in cons- uh, spending on motor vehicles. And that's mm-hmm. as a result of pent-up demand due to lack of stocks. And that's also partly to do with the supply chain. So, so I think all of that is going to continue to drive <clears throat> U.S. spending and the U.S. consumer is about seventy percent of the GDP, right? Okay. So, and the other thing to note is that that savings pile that had built up over the pandemic that's been worked down. That's been mm-hmm. worked down, but it's still very, very high. They've still got quite a bit to work down before they start to worry about their finances. And note that uh, previous cycles. <clears throat> Rates go up more or less in tandem with jobs mm-hmm. and inflation. As jobs go up, as job openings, job openings go up, non-farm payrolls go up, inflation mm-hmm. goes up, so do rates, right? Yep. But this time, rates are only coming very late in the story. So uh, the upshot is that the, if the Fed is still faced with anything near 8% inflation, in the second half of the year. They're going to have to keep raising rates. That means the recession hits with a lag yep. next year. Ah, okay. And and that's just because, you know, I guess, the, the general strength of the economy, at least at this stage, is strong enough to tolerate a few more. The amount of money, cycles, sure. Right? The, yep. the bottom line is uh, the US consumer still has a huge pile of savings to work down. right? So as long as they still have that money to work they can down... Spending. Of course, yeah. of course, and and as long as they haven't blown, um, what's the word for it? The limits, the credit, the credit limits on their cards, right? <laughs> they can keep spending, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, so I think a recession is not likely this year, and that has implications for the stock market, right? Because yeah. the stock market's pro- probably going to go from overpricing recession to then say, "Oh, look, it's all good," and then they. They rally up and then realize the threat hasn't gone away. It's just been postponed, <laughs> which then creates for a very choppy market. Yeah, and, and I think that, that really brings us nicely to the million-dollar question that everybody wants to know, right? You know, we, we, we have kind of taken this view of the economy and, mm-hmm. and what possibly could go, well, not wrong, but you know, what possibly could happen in the next few months, why this is important. But what does this mean for stocks, right? I think that's and our portfolio, whether it's bonds, maybe a bit of commodities, but I think the bulk of what we own, but people, or at least people of my generation tend to own now is, is equities. So what's going to happen? 
not all stocks are the same, right? Okay, yep, so so let's start with with developed market stocks. Let's start with the U.S. I think the U.S. and Europe mm-hmm. uh, they are in bear markets in progress. Yep. Now the S and P five hundred intraday high to intraday low touched twenty one percent decline okay. uh, a couple of weeks ago, right? Okay. And then it rebounded. Yep. Right. So now. That's that's not unusual. In two thousand eight, in two thousand eight, I think it was around March, the S and P five hundred declined some twenty percent from mm-hmm. its intraday high in October of two thousand seven. Right, two thousand seven, October, March two thousand eight. Bear market was recorded at twenty percent. It then did a bounce. It it rebounded fifteen one five okay. fifteen. So, so these sorts of rebounds are not unusual even within bear markets. So, yep. but I do believe we are in a bear market in progress. It hit bear market territory, just touched touched the border, rebounded, and, and I think we we're going to see this as a counter trend rally. The trend mm-hmm. being down. This is a counter trend rally, or if I may be a little bit. A cheeky, I'll call it a bull in the grip of a bear. <laughs> a bounce or, within a bear, or, or a bear trap, or a dead cat bounce. You know, roughly the same thing. We we are in a downtrend. You got trend. awesome definitions. Yes, downtrend down to rebound. I think we're going to go lower, and I think we're going to see the same uh, for European stocks. Now, uh, the other major developed market is Japan right now. <laughs> Um, my call from last year, and, and that still remains the, the call, that uh, amongst developed market equities, the, the Japanese are likely to be the most defensible. Okay. Defensible. It doesn't mean you're going to do fantastically well in absolute terms. In relative terms, is is not going to suffer as much as the U.S. and the European markets. And that's to do with the Bank of Japan's yield curve control, which is a fancy term for uh, Kuroda-san standing in the market, buying every bit of JGB the market throws at him, right? Saying, I will absorb this. We got to remember the JGB has has a fearsome reputation as the widow maker. (laughs) <laughs> the widow maker for all those bold enough to short the JGB, right? So he's going to stand there and prove that anyone who shorts the JGB will rediscover the widow maker, right? He's going to stand in there and he's going to absorb all your JGBs, meaning he's going to keep the yields at zero. He's going to absorb that. So, And by doing that, he can keep rates and yields in Japan at zero whilst everybody else have given up the ghost on zero. Uh, We've just seen the ECB just flag its first rate hike next month, right? So uh, the ECB is uh, sitting at um, a negative at the moment. So its first rate hike in a very, very long time out of negative territory. So that leaves only the Japanese with very, very low cost of funds. Uh, so so I think the uh, Japanese equities are going to do better mm-hmm. than, than the others. But then you will lose a bit on the exchange rate, right? We yeah. have seen it's, it's dollar yen go from right? 120 to, to 130. 
Uh, so we got to watch that. So that's the caveat. We've got to watch that. We can't afford to have the J, uh, the dollar yen go up to 140, 150. That would be a disaster, not just for Japan, but for the rest of the world. Because what I, do you think the Chinese are going to do? Actually, yeah, I was going to ask that. So, so why why is it seen as such a big problem? Before the Asian financial crisis, right? The Chinese two years. Before the Asian financial crisis, that was in 1997. Now, in 1995, around 1995, the Chinese undertook, uh, in those days, it was a totally controlled currency. They undertook a massive devaluation of the CNY. Okay. Right. So, and that, if you like, in my mind, that has always been uh, the precursor of the Asian financial crisis, it seeded, it seeded uh, the lack of competitiveness of the other Asian currencies. Ah, okay. It, right? It seeded the lack of competitiveness of the other Asian currencies, which were still, to some extent, controlled, to a greater or lesser extent, controlled. Uh, the Indonesians uh, had a stepped depreciation of the rupiah in those days. They were not prepared for a massive devaluation of the Chinese yuan. So when that occurred, uh, manufacturers around the world, lost uh, around Asia, lost competitiveness. Uh And that came to, you know, it came home to roost as the the Asian currency crisis. It started as a currency crisis. Then it morphed into a financial crisis because a whole lot of companies then started going broke, right? And then banks got themselves into trouble. So that's one to watch for. We do not want to see uh, uh, aggressive yen weakening provoking uh, the Chinese to devalue their currency. Ah, okay. So, so I, I, I understand that the point about the Japanese equities, right? And, and maybe part of it is also because historically they, they've been seen as undervalued. And at the end of the day, it's maybe a, a slightly harder market for retail, retail like me and, and most of our audience to, to crack into, right? It's short of buying Nintendo, which is one, one big company that we know. Uh, but you know, turning back a bit maybe to the US, right? You know, there, there has been a lot of talk about, you know, going to defensives, going to commodities, uh, tech growth is just slaughtered. Not not just FANG or MANGA or whatever the acronym is now, but, you know, your high beta tech, it's slaughtered, it's 80% down. You know, where, is there any safe harbor, you know, let's say within US, just because it's more liquid and, and you know, it's easier access? If I can go back to your point about um, the retail investors not being able to access the Japanese market, I would correct you on that, that one, okay. if you don't mind. So, yeah, now, go ahead. You can trade the Japanese market with CGS CIMB, right? Uh, <laughs> That's so, true. Yes, That's you true. can, right? Yes, yep. you can. Any retail investor can trade the Japanese market online. Now, it may be a question of knowledge then, how much knowledge you have and how comfortable you are. So, you, you spoke of Nintendo. So so I like Nintendo myself, right? Look, it was beaten down so badly 
um, um, from its high in what 2020 was it 2021? Yep. It got it got absolutely slammed, right? Um, but then it turned into what I call a value tech play. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else is calling it that, but never mind. So please indulge me. I call it a value tech play. It has a dividend yield, what, about 2 to 3% if my memory okay. serves me, right? Which is still okay, right? Yep. Considering the yen earns you zero, right? Yes. Okay. Correct. So, um, and it it is doing uh, things that are in what you might call the tech space. It's a game soft producer, but it trades with the multiples of a value stock. So that's what you can look. Now, another thing to think about in terms of the Japanese market, and this has implications for other Asian markets. The Japanese market is the nearest, well, not the nearest, I'll correct to myself, the Japanese market and parts of the European market are value plays. Are value plays more than the U.S. market, which has a huge growth component. So what I've been saying since very early last year is switch, switch, switch. For goodness sake, mm-hmm. switch from from growth to value. Growth, okay. switch out of growth into value, because if you see rates rising, and then you look at stocks that uh, that have a huge part of their valuations in more distant earnings right Mm -hmm. because we're talking about um um, big innovations we're talking about big trends the mega trends the big innovations in technology whether it's in renewables or it's in um uh what's the word for it uh 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 uh, non-meat food products (laughs) these are these have long payback times into the future, and hence they suffer greater duration risk. Okay. Or if you like, you call it earnings duration risk. So they're more sensitive to interest rates, right? So, uh, so I, I've been saying this: switch to value, switch to value. So there is value in the Japanese market, in mm-hmm. the car makers, uh, in your machinery uh, producers. In your tool makers, Nintendo, yes, right? Uh, the, uh, you, you can even look at boring old Daikin, an air conditioner <laughs> manufacturer. But there is apparently a shortage of air conditioning units now. Oh. Like everything else. That. Well, well, so there you go. So it's a value play. Now, you can find value plays in the European market as well, right? And I know this is not everybody's cup of tea, but the European the energy stocks, the oil majors, are value plays, deep yep. value plays. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It is not ESG friendly. But even that said, if you look at a company like Shell PLC, they have a renewables uh, division and they have a all for fossil fuels division right so and most of the valuation of shell now is actually tied up in the renewables and you're getting you're getting and you're getting the oil and gas for not very much okay so 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 anyway to the united states which is your question same thing all right so within the u.s uh, you'd still be looking for your value plays now Mm -hmm. um um 
there are all manner of value plays around. Healthcare is one, right? So uh, again, the, uh, the energy stocks are another. And you do not necessarily need to be in the energy producers either. You could be in the oil field services yep. companies. And I'm just giving an example. I'm not recommending this per se. Yeah, this is all not financial can't... advice, of course. Yeah, this is not financial advice. So, for example, an example of an oil fuels uh, company is Schlumberger. Okay. Right? So, yeah, and you can find uh, exchange-traded funds that specialize in oil fuel services. So if you're not keen on the producers, you can buy into the people who facilitate the drilling. Okay? <laughs> so that's what the other thing. Now banks. Banks theoretically should do better as rates rise because their net interest margins go up. Uh, the problem now for banks is that they too have a large component of their earnings tied up in investment banking. And that's that's going to get affected by the um, the less than a bullish sort of environment on the market. So uh, you can buy them, but I would be looking at buying them at lower valuations. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, you've, you've got your consu- consumer stocks, which are a- another manifestation of uh, value plays. Uh, food stocks. Now, food stocks and food supply chain stocks. So you don't necessarily have to be at the packaging end mm-hmm. of the uh, uh, the food industry. You could be at the fertilizer end of the food chain, right? So the food supply chain, I'm sorry, right? So do have a look at that too. They have been doing very, very well. Okay, so I mean, I, I hear you on value, right? Um, and and I think I, uh, in my personal portfolio, I tend to have a value you know, component to it because that that's where I first started into investing, you know, with Buffett and, and Graham and, and all of that. So so I, I hear cool. you. Um, but I think two questions. One is you know I, I hear you on commodities, um, on on oil field services. I com- I almost completely agree with you on Shell. Um, although I have, I have a different perspective of ESG, but. At the end of the day, you know, these are also sectors that have run up quite a bit over the past few months, I would say. Indeed. Right? Indeed. And and so they, they have had that period of outperformance. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, is it really going to be continued outperformance, let's say, over the next year, right? Just because of the macro climate or has most of that outperformance already kind of been factored in because the markets are forward looking and therefore, you know, it might not be the best time to, to enter these sectors now. Very good points, Anthony. Very good points. Now, um, commodities is a very wide space, mm-hmm. right? So there's so many different co- commodities at play. Uh, so, so let's start. So they, they all have different characteristics. They all have different timings. Uh, they all have different investment cycles too. So yep. uh, we've got to be very mindful. Uh, in terms of the, the energy stocks, um, I would characterize this as if this was a soccer game, okay. this would be clearly the second half. It may it may even be the fourth quarter. But, you know, in some of the most exciting soccer games, <laughs> all I, the goals... I, I, don't, I don't want to expect, all the goals, I, 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 want, I want a routine to win, right? 
<laughs> and you could get the goals. You could get all two goals in the final quarter of the game. So that's what I'm saying. So uh, jokes aside, um, the energy sector currently, uh, the supply still looks very, very tight. Okay. Okay. So uh, looking at the brand crude, looking at the brand crude, it had been struggling to break above $114 per barrel. Mm-hmm. over the past few weeks but it recently broke over 114 and now it's testing is 123 dollars a barrel resistance now to put some historical perspective onto this and you're right 120 dollars a barrel is not cheap right yeah. <laughs> uh for the longest time crude had been trading in about 60 to 90 yeah. right now, to put it into perspective, in today's dollars, in today's dollars, uh, the 1980s high of crude oil prices was over $140 a barrel. Okay, and and this uh, sorry, and, and I assume the 1980s. This is, is the, the OPEC crisis, right? Well, yeah, there there were. So I'm I'm straining my memory here, but there were two crises. Uh, one in 1970 and one in circa 1980, right? The 1971 was what was called the the OPEC crisis, yep. right? Yeah, that and was that when uh, the and, OPEC and cartel, and that was linked to the Yom Kippur War, when yes. Israel then sort of took a lot of land that used to belong uh, to the Arab world, right? So, and in retaliation, OPEC as a cartel, which was and almost, in, I think it was entirely Arabic then, right? So then uh, imposed embargoes on mm-hmm. uh, the Western countries. So that was the 1970. The 1980 uh, was another crisis. You see, they were not just purely geopolitical events. Both the 1970s and the early 1980s were the culmination of long periods of monetary expansion in the United States. Yep. Let me repeat. They were the culmination of long periods of M2 year-on-year expansion. Years of it, right? So, And that resulted in an overheated U.S. economy. What has that got to do with the price of oil? The U.S. is a big consumer of oil, right? So, And what happens in the U.S. doesn't stay in the, the U.S., it goes out to the rest of the world. A, 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 a robust U.S. economy tends to have spillover effects to the rest of the world. It drives the rest of the world economy to an overheated status as well. So we saw the same. And there was also that sort of underinvestment in, uh, in oil, uh, in the energy sector, in the lead up to 1970 and 1980. In 1980, the specific geopolitical trigger, I, if my memory serves me correctly, was the Iran-Iraq war, right? Which disrupted uh, two great oil-producing countries, Iran and Iraq. So, but so the, I'm talking about the 1980s now. That was when uh, Paul Volcker drove U.S. rates to above 20%. And inflation was just absolutely rampant. So there are a number of things moving around there. But the inflation-adjusted price of oil in 1980 peak 
if my memory serves me correctly, adjusted to today's dollars would be over $140. So we're currently doing about $120 on the brand crude. And I think we still have room to move up. So we recently saw OPEC Plus. OPEC Plus saying, look, um, we will increase our the delta, the incremental production from 430,000, 30 plus thousand barrels per day to 630 or 640,000 barrels per day. The exact number, please forgive me, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a 50-50% increase, right? And yet the price of oil broke 114 on that news. Why? It was 50% of sweet nothing. Let me repeat. It was sweet... Look, OPEC had been underproducing its quota for the entire year. It started underproducing its quota by 700,000 barrels per day. And by the last OPEC meeting, they were underproducing by 2.6 million barrels per day. So, so you know, it is uh, whispering sweet nothings into Joe Biden's <laughs> ears. We promise you this, but we promise you 50% more, 50% more of nothing, frankly. So I think there's still some upside. So it's very, very tight. The fact that OPEC is underproducing its own quota shows you that they are struggling with capacity. Yeah. They are struggling with capacity. And... Uh, once China, and I say once, I don't say if, once China delivers its COVID zero, this can continue indefinitely, yeah. right? So, or eases up at least. That's going to drive uh, the demand even harder. Okay, I think that that's all very So, So, <laughs> to your point, uh, to your point, yes, absolutely, nothing lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Nothing lasts forever. But, but I think we could continue to see this through uh, the second half of this year. Uh, it is foolish for anyone to say this is going to end in October. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> How fair, you fair enough. Yeah, fair you know enough. what I mean? Yeah. But, but I say second half of the year, watch. Watch the, the inventories, right? The uh, EIA inventory levels. Watch OPEC production sort of levels and just keep your eye closed on the price price action on your screen. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, and, and I think though, that the historical kind of precedent, right, or, or reference makes sense as well. Just just on, on that train of thought, you know, in, in the 1970s, in, in high inflation and all that, I think one of the sectors that had outperformed at that time was also consumer non-discretionary, right? As you mentioned, consumer, but well, specifically non-discretionary because people need to eat and, and, and you, know, you can't yeah, eat yeah, food, right? And, you know, an argument that, that has been going around recently um, <clears throat> is, you know, yes, we look at consumer non-discretionary maybe now in this climate, but there are other things that have become non-discretionary. Maybe not Netflix because Netflix is well, subscription-based, it's, it's you know, entertainment, but what about things like, you know, Microsoft, Right. Um, maybe not Apple again because luxury, but Facebook maybe advertisements are necessary. You know, online advertisements are not slightly necessary to you know modern society. Google as well. What you know? Do you have any thoughts on something like this? Um, advertising is vulnerable to the cycle, okay. right? Um, um, and that includes 
online advertising um, as well, not not just in all world uh, advertising. So, so I'm uh, not convinced that your Facebook or Metaverse, right? <laughs> I mean, let, let, is, let's let's is, not talk about the Metaverse. It's it's going to last an hour. <laughs> I don't think those ones are going to be um, um, cycle proof, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I do agree that some of the uh, more traditional sec- tech sectors uh, that have a more commodity nature, which in the old days was a bad word, yeah. right? uh, now may be actually the better. Right. So uh, if you are a semiconductor manufacturer, you're probably going to still do okay because there's still a huge shortage of chips around now. Mm-hmm. And um, the Microsoft, yes, you're absolutely right. That is still something we can't do without if we want to continue to be productive, we want to continue to work. You won't starve if you don't have a Microsoft, but you won't be able to earn the money and then you'll have to eat a lot less. Yep. You, I mean, if you don't companies have just the, can't the run, income. right? And if companies right. can't run, so, salaries get paid, lots of problems. So it's the people who run the infrastructure, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the software um, the servers that are probably going to be more defensible, right, uh, than than your your Facebook or Google, which are dependent on advertising. So, so I do disagree that advertising is is not vulnerable to the cycle. It is. Yep. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, look, I, I think that there are parts of the the advertising, the sorry, ad tech or, or advertising sector that that might be a bit more recession proof, right? Maybe let's put it that way. They are they are slightly more recession proof compared yeah, to their competitors sure. than than others, right? Sure. And yeah. and yeah. but and and that kind of brings me to and, my and, next. And the, the the and the valuation for for Microsoft is much lower than those that are with your your you know your. Not 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 Amazon. We're talking Facebook. We're talking Netflix, right? Yep. We're talking talking Alphabet. You know, yes. they enjoy a higher valuation, which then also makes them more vulnerable. You know? Fair, fair enough, fair enough. I, I think you know, Microsoft's PE is equivalent to Coca Cola, or, or really near there. So yeah, and, so and I know which one I would prefer. That, right? that, so. That's what you might call a value tech. Okay, right? okay, fair enough. Um, then I guess my other pushback or I guess a part of, of your previous um, statements that I didn't really quite agree with, you know, was the shift mm. in growth to the value, right? I mean, you know, leaving aside the dichotomy uh, or taxonomy, whatever nomenclature you want to use, my mm. concern, um, and I think what we have generally been trying to, to advocate for is, you know, we, we want to be long-term investors, right? And, you know, from the long-term investing lens, Maybe it's partially about multiples, yes, but it's also partially about the underlying <coughs> business, right? A shareholder is at the end of the day an owner of stock in, in a performing business. And you yep. know, that and that's why a lot of you know our previous stock accounts and all that have focused very much on how we evaluate a business and, and how that business sure. could grow. And and that's kind of growth investing, right? Because you are looking at a business that potentially grows, you know, over the next five to ten years. I hear you about the, the business cycle, the, the interest rates, the duration risk, because that brings down 
the probability of these businesses <laughs> still continuing to be good businesses over the, the next five to ten years. But you know, I, I'm just wondering for maybe people with a, a more long term lens, right? Because it, it's kind of difficult to to switch suddenly strategies, right? If if they started, you know. One, two, three years ago with, with a longer term lens as, as to, well, I want to be more growth oriented. I want to be things like that. It's, it's difficult to switch the portfolio overnight, right? Especially for retail where, where we are a bit less tactical and, and all that. So, you know, it's there, uh, I guess, solace <laughs> or room for comfort. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm helping myself cope here, right? <laughs> but is, is there solace or room for comfort in, in that kind of thinking that, you know, longer term, the strong companies will win. And, and this is, I think, in my view, valid because, you know, recessions tins up competition, right? So, for example, if there were 10 companies, you, you, had, you have maybe the, the, the two or three strongest ones and the two or three weakest ones die off because they are poor performing companies, right? And, and therefore, you get more market share and when the economy recovers in hopefully a few years, then that's when you shine again, I guess. Anthony, all valid points. What I would say, though, uh, is you've got to be clear to yourself what your time frames are, okay. right? If you're in this for, for 10 years, it's a very different thing from if you're, if you're trying and most, most uh, traders, sorry, all traders and most funds have to report, have to report their performance every three months. The right? joy so, of retail. <laughs> uh, so, um, so that's the first thing to be said. That if you, um, if an investor has a ten-year time frame, and he or she has in identified uh, a stock that would deliver that growth over over ten years. Um, and they are, f- are very clear that's their objective, then they would not want to have too many doubts about that mm-hmm. because switching in and out is the worst thing you can do, right? Uh, you've got to, to decide what sort of investor you are. You're a long-term, you're a mid-term, you're a trader, you're a day trader at the extreme. You've got to know which one you are. Confusing your time frames is a, is a sure way, uh, sure recipe for disaster. So that's the first point to be made. Now, the next point to be made is that identifying good companies is not necessarily um, the exclusive province of of growth uh, value definitely is. <laughs> right. yeah. so you 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 in fact all that came out from value investing right your berkshire hathaway your warren buffett uh and morningstar talks about moats right <laughs> around a company defensibility the mo- so these typically actually apply to value stocks so uh whether you're looking at a growth stock or you're looking at a value stock, these sorts of considerations should always, always um, uh, prevail. Okay. Can they deliver? Um, can they deliver the first thing? Can they deliver earnings? Can they deliver cash? All right. Or are they burning uh, the cash? You know, so much that they can't 
pay you anything, right? And are they, and if they are burning up cash for investments, can they trans, do they have a business model or do they have a product that is capable of delivering on the investments, right? So these are all the things that would still apply, that would still apply. So all I was talking about when I talk about growth versus value or value versus growth was that at certain times of the cycle, uh, you have your strategic asset allocation, which in geek speak is long term. You don't want to mess around with it too much. Yep. Right. And then you have your tacticals. Right. Mm-hmm. To And your tactical asset allocations uh, to to. What's the word for it? To maximize your returns at uh, at certain points in the cycle, right? And it's and and typically your tilts in your tactical is not an all or nothing, mm-hmm. right? So your tilts are plus five percent or minus five percent. So when when fund fund managers say they are overweight five, uh, no, they're overweight on 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 value, they yep. may mean having 5% more in value than in growth, okay. if you understand yeah. what I mean, in, in a broad portfolio sense. So, so so I'm not trying to deliver you comfort or solace <laughs> as you, you described it, but within the portfolio, within the long-term investment portfolio process, right, there are legitimate roles for the different parts of the investment world and when we say prefer overweight value mm-hmm. right uh, typically in your uh, portfolio it doesn't mean throwing everything out and buying <laughs> the energy stocks uh, yes traders traders do that but portfolios don't yeah and and i think maybe just more as a note to the audience <clears throat> than, than to you I, I think you know this is where you know as retail we, we tend to have to be very careful right because you know mm. by the time you start looking at when the newspaper starts screaming to buy energy and and you sell all of your tech stocks to buy energy you are effectively that's probably the that's, that's probably the, the day the, the, the day before it, it, it goes down <laughs> uh, exactly right you you are you are you have bought the high and sold the low so it, it's important to have Absolutely. the plan and you know, and and this is actually a really good lesson, and p- because probably this is the first big downturn um, in the business cycle that my generation has had, it is a very good yep. you know way for you to look at your own psychology, right, to see how well you can hold through a down market. And, and how you quickly you can react. Um, I mean, because I've had tech stocks that fell 30% over there and I just go, I can't, I can't cut, right? Look, because I, I'm look. scared and I'm paralyzed. And, and this is really, you know, the, the reality that, that we live through. The, the lesson that we learn, right? It's experience that, that we are getting. So, you know, people hmm. might be upset about losing money and, and all that. Look, I, I sympathize with you, right? But at the end Absolutely. of the day, it, it's a longer term lesson. We are, well, we, are, we I mean me and then most of the audience say, but unfortunately, you know, although you look really young, um, we, we are longer, we have a long term ahead of us. So better to learn this lesson now, I would say, than you know, when we are 60. Mm. Right, and, yep. and we are looking to retire. Mm. So that that's mm. my spiel for for this. Um, now I do want to talk about you know Singapore and and China and Hong Kong, right? Because you know yep. we, we talked about at well, mature markets, right? Japan being being the the closest one, but 
you know, emerging markets, well, were attra- are attractive. Well, one, because a lot of emerging markets have had inflation crisis. So, you know, central bank playbooks can kind of take a page, if not out of the, the what, what was done correctly, but at least what was done, you know, incorrectly, right? And, and second, yep. I think, you know, Hong Kong, China, Singapore kind of holds a place closer to our hearts just because it's, it's close. <clears throat> it's in the same time zone. Mm. And particularly, I think, for China at this stage, their macro seems to be loosening, right? So like Japan holding their, their interest rates at zero, you know, China is trying to go into an expansionary phase, you know, following COVID or following the, the current wave of COVID. Right. So, yep. yeah, if, if you can just tell us a bit more about China and Singapore. Well, I was going to talk about the the whole the whole Asian. OK. Asia ex Japan. Yep. Uh, not just Singapore and China. So I sort of alluded, as I was saying, I kind of alluded to that, that uh, that Japan is a value play. Right. Yes. And and so is most of Asia ex Japan. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, now. The MSCI ASEAN, the MSCI ASEAN, collectively, yeah, uh, has outperformed the S and P five hundred since the start of the year, okay. quite significantly too. Has been outperforming the S and P five hundred since the start of the year, and that can again be explained by uh, the S and P five hundred having a larger uh, proportion of tech stocks, yep. right, which are more, more vulnerable, and we're or already talked about that. So ASEAN, um, the ASEAN markets are more old school, old world uh, value plays, yes. right? So, um, and if you look at the two specific markets, the two best markets in ASEAN, when I say best, I mean the best performing okay. markets year to date within ASEAN. They have been, number one, Indonesia. Okay. And number two, Singapore, right? Yes. Now, Singapore is your is your regional trade expression of the value trade, mm-hmm. right? It's your local trade expression of value, right? Uh, when you look at the Straits Times Index, it is the banks <laughs> and property, the three banks and property and reads, right? But yes, out. and, it, and it's you have and you have got. Your um, uh, utilities, you've got Singtel, and Singtel has done very well. Uh, but it's not just Singtel. Where when you look around the world, uh, the telcos have have generally done better than uh, the the benchmark index, right? And utilities too have generally done a bit better than the benchmark indices. Uh, and the logic of that. Being that um, that utilities have a throughput that keeps, give you understand what I mean? That they, yeah. they have a predictable flow of whatever they produce, whether it's electricity or whether it's it's, it's gas or 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 it's water. Yeah, I, right? I think, okay, I think so, it's just certainty of revenue, right? That does it. Because certainty, revenue, thank you, thank you. That, that's the word I was struggling for. Certainty of revenue. And uh, very frequently, they can reprice that. Yes, that, and very frequently, revenue they, they as well. have very frequently infl- they inflation increases that, as well. That's right. right? <laughs> so it is a more defensible sort of area to be in. Indonesia has been a straight outright play. 
mm-hmm. on commodity on world commodity producers. So if you look at the Jakarta Composite Index and you overlay that against the um, uh, the Refinitiv CRB Commodities Producer Index, it tracks very nicely. Okay. So it is a commodity producer market. Now it doesn't mean that you you have to buy a commodity producer in the in, in Indonesia. It is an economy that's benefiting from its commodity production. Yep. So, uh, so even the banks and the retailers start behaving like a commodity play. If you understand what I'm saying, yes. because they are beneficiaries of. Uh, uh, commodities as an inflation. Yeah, plan. I think it, it's also partially, you know, an increase in well, value of the production, right? Which kind of flows through the Absolutely. entire economy, whether that's it bad, flows to yeah. the that's it, that's it. it. It flows through your whole ecosystem. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Completely. Um, okay. And and China. Yes. <laughs> so China. Um, so China has gone through a if you like, a test of endurance mm-hmm. for most investors. Um, so, and we talked about long-term investors. Uh, very short-term, t- technically, we're starting to see uh, the CSI 300 break out above critical resistances, right? Uh, we are seeing uh, the China, the CSI Overseas China Internet Index, the one that Alibaba is on and Tencent yep. and Meituan and all these guys. So that's also starting to break out, as you saw very recently. Now, don't count on this being a straight line recovery. All right. Fair so enough. China still has a lot of policy risk. All right. Uh, and the policy risks are number one, COVID zero. Mm-hmm. Okay, when will that be eased? When will that be gone? The second policy risk is, yes, they say that they are normalizing. The policymakers say they they have normalized um, uh, uh, policy towards the platform companies. The platform companies are your Tencent, your your Baba, your Meituan, right? So uh, they have normalized uh, their policies. And that may be true, and we can only take their word for it. But normalization still has to be followed up with restructuring yes. of these companies, right? To to comply, to comply. Yes. So so there is still work to be done. It's work in progress. But markets, as you quite rightly pointed out, tend to be forward looking, right? So uh, and the stimulus is kicking in. Right, so uh, we've had just had a whole slew of policy announcements, too numerous to to to, to recap here. And not not that I can even remember them all, <laughs> but there is a lot of stimulus coming your way, coming our way, coming the market's way. Uh, Bloomberg has done the calculations; it is still slightly below what was delivered in uh, 2020, but it is way above what was delivered in 2021. So the government is starting to spend. And we should see that in coming months in in the the data on loans growth. We're going to see that in terms of um, uh, the money supply sort of aggregates. So if you look for them now, you won't see it yet. Yes. Because they've just 
been announced. So uh, these are the early stages of uh, China re what's the word normalizing its economy. And I would be cautiously, I'll be mm-hmm. cautiously saying this is the time to start bargain hunting yep. for Chinese equities too, with a long term view. Yes, I mean I think you know this is me, but for for China at least, I mean I can't say much about Indonesia. Um, Singapore, I I love it because I I, I overweighted it this early this year, so so it's been the, the one right spot in my portfolio. And right? and and and, and Singapore's done done well. It's yes. one of the, the the one of the best performing markets in the world. Yes, yeah, so so, so that, that that's been my bright spot. Um, but I, I mean, on on China, good for you. <laughs> and, yeah, my one bright spot amongst the many many top spots. But uh, on China, I mean, I my concern and and this may I and I don't know how overblown this is is you know a lot. I my sense of the Chinese uh, loosening and the Chinese macro is a lot to do with the real economy, right? So it's about asking banks to you know land in a more in a looser fashion, in a sense, and but and and that's all fine, right? In you know we we have done that in past crises where they have built lots of infrastructure and and everything gets built out well. It flows, it increases the the velocity of money through, through the entire economy, because your your state SOEs construction companies build and you know everything that just kind of goes on the supply chain. But overlaying all of this in the current context is Evergrande and and the whole property sector. Right, and where where banks are concerned, well, definitely more more than concerned about lending to these entities, and and they have no offshore loans, and you know, so do you see there as you know some as a possible obstacle? Because I don't think the the Chinese government is going to say, oh yeah, I'll save Evergrande, don't worry, right? There was also a policy consideration to let the property market deflate. And now if they are injecting market if they are injecting money again and injecting it through construction, right, not necessarily only property, but through construction, then is there any, you know, kind of overlapping, I guess, goals they're trying to achieve that, that kind of blocks how they want to stimulate the economy? Yeah. Look, um I won't pretend to have any insights into what um what the 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 policymakers are planning for the heavily indebted property companies like Evergrande. Uh, I can only guess that uh, that it, it will be worked out in the same way that a lot of um, that indebted companies are worked out. So I think the problem with China is that people tend to think of China as being a special case, mm-hmm. right? Where the government will come in and bail them out. So, look, uh, and as you pointed out, uh, you are quite young, and I, I've got a lot of grey hair. So, so, uh, so I go back to my time in Indonesia mm-hmm. when I was in stockbroking there during the Asian financial crisis, or just before the Asian financial uh, crisis, and so. It's worked out in the same. It was worked out in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Thailand, in exactly the same way in which it was worked out in Latin America, right? Ten years before that, right? So when you had the the Latin American uh, crisis, there there are very well established mechanisms for forming. Um, they call them 
AMCs, asset management companies, which are uh, are funded by government bonds, right? Uh, Government bond issuance, and which then buy out these assets of distressed companies, and then they auction them off to in an open market to the rest of the world. So, uh, so. It is not a crisis that they cannot solve. It has been done. It's been done in Indonesia. It's been done in Latin America. Don't tell me it can't be done in China. The only reason it's not being done in China is because they don't need to yet. It's not a crisis. But then they would have to auction it off to the world, right? And they don't want to do that. But they can stop short of that. They, they can have it auctioned off to domestic domestic buyers. So, yes. so I wouldn't overstate this okay the my guess is the reason the chinese haven't needed to do it was because they didn't have to yet right it it didn't pose a systemic risk the way it posed in indonesia and thailand right so 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 i'd say uh, don't sweat the 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 indebted uh, chinese property company uh, as long as you are not holding their bonds. <laughs> if you are holding their bonds, you would sweat it, right? Uh, you you but, have taken so much of a haircut, you don't need to sweat it anymore. It, it's very hard <laughs> to go that much lower. Yeah, well, true, 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 true that. So, look, I would say, look, um, I wouldn't be buying into these heavily indebted um, um, uh, Chinese property developers, but they are much better positioned uh, Chinese property developers, and there are some even listed in Singapore, right? Uh, which have good balance sheets. So do take a look at them, and there might be some buying opportunities there. Look at the uh, the 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 uh, the projects that they have, and try to gain an understanding of what their uh, sales process is likely to be, and how mm-hmm. it's going to flow back in terms of earnings. So I think there are opportunities even in the property sector in China yep. and I w- wouldn't let um, uh, the the few heavily indebted property companies detract you because eventually there will have to be a workout right yep. and and the the people who are likely to buy out the assets will be the strong ones yes. right uh, because I find it very hard to see an Indonesian type sale process conducted by the U.S. investment bank <laughs> where international uh, you know, funds <laughs> then come into buy. That, that, that would never be, be tolerated in China, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so they would probably, conduct, when they have to, they will work them out in line with their own needs and the, the buyers will probably be domestic. Yep, fair, fair enough on on the on the broader context, and I think um in in case people are wondering, they they have well mostly successfully done the, the workout of the HNA group, right, which was Hainan Airlines. That's um, right. Two three years. That's back. right. So, so thank it, you. They, they are exactly they are right. breaking up a, a play. They are building up a playbook um that that kind of protects their own national interests while not letting Absolutely. retail you know get get too destroyed in the process. There um, there is nothing new under the sun in this sort of asset management process in the companies that are under financial stress yep it's been done everywhere in the world and and uh, 
the Chinese would know this back to front and front to back. Right? They, 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 they will do it when, when the time's right, you know. And I don't think it poses a systemic risk. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I think as as the property crisis has dragged on, the the risk of it being systemic has kind of fallen away or being managed down as well, right? Um. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That. Fair enough. That's kind of about it. I'm I'm very conscious of time because we are taking up a, a bit of your quite a lot of your time. That's do, all right. Do, I've enjoyed that. Do, do we have time to maybe take a whistle stop tour of you know other asset classes? So we have done equities sure, and, sure, and a bit yeah. of commodities, but. What about let's say bonds, right? Because your your treasury bonds are going to what three? Your ten year yield is close to three percent, which mm. isn't unattractive, right? If you are saying that a read a stable read play in Singapore is five five and a half percent, well, a risk free rate for a treasury yield, of course, without capital appreciation, is three percent, and that's not unattractive if you are really well, conservative. The problem with treasuries is that. Your 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 every man every woman investor can't access it. You and I, even I can't. Right? Okay. Uh, it is an institutional thing. I mean, um, but if I could, I would not be buying it to hold either. Mm-hmm. Right? If I could, it would be a purely trading sort of uh, situation. Okay. So if you're looking at bonds, if you're generally, I would not be wanting. To hold too many bonds in this environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the bonds that I would hold uh, would be to hold to maturity, right? So, yep. and you've got to be prepared to take the mark to market. You got to close your eyes to the mark to market as long as you are getting the coupons, right? Okay. As long as so, so like you analyze a company for its fundamentals is it going to deliver 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 me growth right mm-hmm. when you buy a bond you are looking at will it deliver me cash <laughs> so can it is its cash flow generation that's critical can it generate enough cash um, you need to sort of stress test the cash flows to make sure they can generate enough cash to continue to pay you the yields that you get. Okay. Right? And and there are, are people with mandates. I mean, even uh, family offices with born-only mandates, right, that they can't buy anything else. So mm-hmm. that's what they've got to do. They've got to look look at the, the credit quality and the cash generation capability of those companies that you're buying to make sure you you are comfortable, you are happy with the balance sheet and the uh, the the cash yep. flows, and not just not just happy with the yields. Yes, I, I think it it's a kind of a reframing, right? Because bonds are effectively debt, and you you need to and Absolutely. just like how you kind of think of a company being able to pay dividends, you know, and their payout ratio, you do need to know that they have enough you know, cash flow to service their debt as well. And, and so I guess the, that, the, that's a reframing the, of how you look at it. Well, I can even frame it in a more sort of a person in the street way, mm-hmm. right? The reason why I, I bulk at saying buy bonds now is when rates are rising, your mark-to-market value in bonds do go down, right? Yep. So even if you're 
prepared to hold it to maturity, it can be quite an unpleasant <laughs> sort of experience, right? Uh, so uh, let me frame this in a every person in the street way, right? Um, like right now in Australia, and I'm in Melbourne, Australia, where uh, property prices have finally started coming down. Great. Right? So, um, so, so I could buy a property with a 2.5% yield mm-hmm. about, about three months ago. Now I could probably buy a, a house with a 3% yield because prices are going down, right? Yes. Okay. And why are prices going down? Because mortgage rates are going up, right? So that's the parallel between bonds and the property market because they give you a certain amount of income, right? Yes. Okay. So uh, would I b- buy a property now and say I- I'm going to hold it for the long term? Well, I could. Well, I could, right? Mm-hmm. I could. But the question is why? Can't I wait for another 12 months? When the when I could probably buy it at three point five or four, yep. yield four percent yield, right? Wouldn't that look a little bit more attractive? If you have to, you have to, right? For whatever personal circumstances, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. if you do need to buy the bonds for whatever um, specific sort of investment goals that you have that we are not aware of, then do it. But just be prepared to. Not look at the mark to market every day yeah. is going to drive you mad. Yeah, I think it, it's maybe no longer a trading <clears throat> instrument. It's, it's more of, no, no. as you said, right? You hold it to maturity. You want that 3% um, coupon payment every six months and uh, 1.5% because every need, six months. Yeah. Because you want to fund that, your retirement, a, um, get a bit of cash, that's right. and, and that psychological. And, you and know, you want, you want, yeah, you want reliability that you will get that. Uh, stream of coupons at uh, those those intervals right uh, whereas with uh, stock dividends it can be quite unpredictable yes. but therein lies the rub make sure the company can generate the cash to deliver you your predictable stream of payments Yes, that, I think that that's exactly right. Um, in case you know the listeners are interested, the Singapore Savings Bond, which is quasi guaranteed by the government, yeah. is yeah. two point seven percent, right? So if you want something yeah, that's sure. bigger than your CPF ordinary account, that is maybe about as risk free. That that's an alternative, right? If you don't want to, that's a good point. No, that's an absolutely valid point. I totally agree. Yep. yep. But but it as you said, you know, it's not a trading instrument. You are not looking for it to you know increase your portfolio value by too much. No, you are not no. looking for capital it's, appreciation. It's it's, it's for a very specific yes. specific purpose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I I can get on board with that. I think we we are right. <laughs> um. Then just alternatives, right? What what else is there? You know, the stocks, there's bonds, crypto. I think it's dead. Um, we we don't want to spend another three hours here talking about crypto. Um. Well, I mean, we can, but we probably don't have enough time for that. Um, are yeah. there any other viable alternatives you see that maybe are a bit more accessible? I mean, art, wine, watches, Rolexes, probably a bit too inaccessible. Unless you non fungible tokens. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, I, I, I think um, uh, I, I prefer to keep it simple, right? Mm-hmm. So, so right now the 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 biggest alternative is actually commodities okay and a whole range of 
commodities. And not all commodities, as I said earlier, have the same characteristics, right? So, so, um, so if you look at uh, iron ore, yep. right, and you can uh, gain exposure to the iron ore market through through miners, mm-hmm. right? Through through the iron ore miners. So in in the context of Australia, you've got Rio Tinto, yep. you've got BHP, you've got FMG Fortescue, yes. right? Uh, so you can gain exposure through through miners. So um, that is more closely related to China, mm-hmm. right? So if you think that and Chinese stocks have long decoupled from the U.S. market, yes. right? So they have very low correlations now. So so if if the the U.S. is the U.S. economy is slowing and maybe even contracting, right? And the Chinese start to stimulate theirs in an example of what the Chinese call cross-cyclical economic policy, which to me just sounds like counter-cyclical, right? So, But they've got a special term for it there. So as the US economy starts to go down, slow at least, and the Chinese economy start to stimulate, that's an alternative play mm-hmm. that you could look at, right? Um, uh, what else? Uh, and there are um, quite a few uh, commodities that are linked to uh, the transition to renewables, right? Yeah. So that is something you could to, to look at as a longer-term play, as an alternative that's not uh, related directly to the economic cycle, yeah, but more, if you like, to transitions, yeah? Uh, what else? Um, we've talked about oil and gas. Yeah, um, a bit of agriculture, yeah. weeds, I think that agriculture, been in the, the headlines. Yeah, yeah and, and agriculture is not, uh, so much cycle related as it's right now being driven by a combination of uh, the 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 plantings, mm-hmm. uh, the climate. Yep, it's, there's been a lot of climate disruption, and if you subscribe to the idea that climate change is going to be more and more disruptive that's something that could be occurring more frequently but it's also related to uh, the geopolitics of the Ukraine where grains uh, where which provide a a huge supply of the world's grains so so they they are non-correlated in that sense and hence the term alternatives Okay, okay, fair enough. I think one last question, and this is maybe the most important one for our listeners to, to thank them for staying till the end. Uh, what's the best idea you think you have right now? In terms of investing, whether that's you know, risk-adjusted or just absolute returns, I'll leave it up to you. But the, the, the best, yeah, do, do you have any off the top of your head? So straight off, I will tell you what I've been doing Mm-hmm. myself i've been investing in commodities okay all right uh, i've been investing in commodities outside of commodities i've had some stocks in japan and that's i i i 
do what I say. Right? So, uh, but apart from that, if you're not real keen on joining the commodities uh, cycle at this stage, you know, I think there will be a huge buying opportunity coming soon. Okay. Right. So nothing lasts forever. Yes. Right. Not bull markets, not bear markets. So, so you know my view that this is a bear market in progress, mm-hmm. right? So watch. It will come to an end probably sooner rather than later, right? So this is not going to go on for years, yeah. right? This is not going to go on for years. At some stage, your volatility into this spike, your selling volumes go up, and you get this sense of capitulation, right? Currently, uh, if you look at look at the U.S. market, the P/E ratio, forward P/E ratio, is about 17 times, right? Uh, previous cycles they've ranged from 10 times to 14 times, right? So these are the things to watch for. You don't have to catch the absolute lowest, mm-hmm. but if you catch the the lower end of it. Uh, Good enough. That would be, to me, that would be one of the biggest opportunities. So if you can get a a, a, a good solid bank, right, trading only slightly above book book value, for example, right, good solid bank, and we have seen that yes. at the bottom of cycles, you can buy good solid banks at a slightly above book book value. Take it. Yeah. Right. That. To me, is the best idea I can give you. So I can tell you how you can trade uh, the energy stocks in the fourth, in the final quarter of the game. But that's not the best idea. The best idea is to keep your powder dry within possibly a few months, mm-hmm. right? Towards the later part of the year, maybe early next year, you will start to see those opportunities. You should grab them. Uh, because those will be the big ones. Yep, and and I think. And when you do, and when you do, can I put in a plug for CGSCI? Of course, and buy it through Buy through Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you. <laughs> That's. I mean, I, I was going to say as an example, you really. That was a, that, that that was that was a shameless plug. It's fine. But, we, we, we are very good at shameless plugs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and and just to to plan. you will forgive me. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, no, no issue. Nothing to forgive. Um, I I think you know. And as a real life example of the price to book and banks, you could have bought DBS. I think five years ago at zero point eight, zero point nine price to book, right? And you have made hundred well, percent time. Just so, across yeah across the, the board. So, so all the Singapore banks, come, right? right? Times will come. We times just will kind come. of have the yeah. patience. All right. That's and, it. On that's that uplifting it, note, it. because that is the cause for optimism, I, I think we, we can end it for today. Um, did you have any other things you, you wanted to mention? No, no, I just like I like just like to thank you uh, and and your crew uh, for the opportunity to speak to your audience, and I'd like to thank your audience for staying if they are still watching this <laughs> for staying until the end. All right, Th- thanks very much. Two thumbs David. up. Two 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 <laughs> thumbs up. All right. <laughs> thank you. Speak soon. Bye. Thanks, Anthony. Cheers, buddy. Bye.